Hello and welcome to Feed and Flourish, the bite-sized podcast series from the Closters Forum with me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I'll be talking to experts about biodiversity and about the ways in which we can transform our food systems so that we can positively preserve our planet. The Closters Forum brings together thought leaders and decision makers in the Swiss Alps to inspire discussions and cultivate collaborations around some of the world's most pressing environmental challenges. My name is Richard Walker. I am Managing Director at Ison Foods, which uh, I suppose is um, what I'm known for, but I also wear many other hats. Uh, I'm chairman at a property company and trustee of several leading environmental charities, including Surface Skin Sewage, where I am chairman. So yeah, quite busy at the moment. Well, as all of those things, but particularly as the managing director of a leading supermarket, I have no doubt there's quite a lot that keeps you awake at night. But obviously, we're talking about biodiversity, which I know is something that you have great interest in. I just wonder where issues surrounding biodiversity and, and planet health feature in your list of concerns and priorities, particularly now when there's a lot to think about. Yeah, well, uh, from a personal perspective, I'm hugely concerned. I've always been uh, a big environmentalist, um, long-term member of Greenpeace, and uh, we live in the countryside, and I'm a keen kind of surfer and climber in my spare time. So I've always had like a a deep love of the natural world, and that's only become greater since uh, I became dad of two daughters. Um, But also, I think from a business perspective, you know, we, we want a resilient, diverse uh, food system and we saw a year ago in the depths of um, the panic buying that that gripped the nation in March 2020 just how disjointed and compartmentalized some of our food system really is so I think it's about future business resilience as well Um, and it's certainly something that I think about constantly so much so I've written a book about it. (laughs) I want to come back to a lot of that and pick up on it including of course your book Let's just stick with supermarkets and then we could look at business more widely. I mean, there is no doubt supermarkets can make a huge difference when it comes to biodiversity because, of course, we've seen how much our food systems in terms of waste, the types of food we eat, the way we eat affects biodiversity, affects our planet. But how can supermarkets make a difference? And more particularly, perhaps, why would they when there isn't necessarily a financial or economic incentive for them to make the sorts of sustainable changes and pledges that they need to? I think it depends who you are. You know, if you're Waitrose and you're selling to posh customers who can afford to pay more for ethical products, then it it probably is good business sense. And it's baked into a lot of supermarket and businesses um, business models that they're sustainable products they uh, they charge more for it uh, so so they they can potentially earn more margin we don't have that luxury at Iceland uh, we have five million customers a week and some of them are the most from the most deprived communities uh, across the UK so some of our customers only have 25 pound a week perhaps to, to spend on food and therefore everything we do has to be cost neutral and it would certainly be commercial suicide if if we were to attempt to try and charge more for it 
Um, and I look at, you know, a lot of products that come from the organic movement, the regenerative agricultural movement. I think they're fabulous, but there is zero chance that, you know, our, our customers would um, would want to pay so much uh, for, for certain products because they can't afford to. So, um, we're, you know, we're doing it because it's the right thing to do, but it has to be uh, democratized so that it's relevant and relatable to anyone, rich or poor. I mean, that's the most important thing, isn't it? It comes up every single podcast that I do on this subject is that sustainable produce, local produce are associated rightly with higher prices and with a more affluent elite way of living. And people often come on and say, shop in your local farmer's market, go to your local butcher. And I think that is just alien to most people. I can't do that at the, at the moment, at least. Mm. So how- I think it's really important because... Uh, for too long, the environmental debate has been a middle class debate, and we've got to reframe it. You know, it's got to be about jobs and and people, and real people. You know, not 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 those that have plenty of cash and time t- to spare. So, and and that's where what we do at Iceland, plastic. You know, uh, getting out of plastic, uh, eliminating palm oil, food waste, carbon, etc., is really exciting because it's scalable. And to be scalable and therefore truly impactful, you, you need to find cost-neutral solutions for the end consumer. And I think, as Iceland are discovering, advances in tech and productivity is starting to make this possible. Um, and, um, you know, that, that's why I'm very optimistic about the future. That's really interesting. Do you have any further thoughts on how you democratise it, how you make it accessible for people with, I, I always say tighter budgets. I mean, I think just ordinary budgets, really. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's systemic change, obviously, that, that is required. Um, and I think the food system is just one sector, albeit perhaps the most important, where we need that systemic change to reduce carbon and enhance nature. And therefore, that relies on a, a, a vast array of solutions from uh, policy solutions. You know, I'm a big supporter of a, a clear, consistent carbon tax. Um, I think the new Agricultural Act with uh, the proposed ELMS system which is all about encouraging farmers uh, through subsidies to restore nature is um, is absolutely the way to go and that ambition needs to be um, kept as strong as it was when it was first announced um, through to businesses like mine um, which uh, you know have a, an enormous role to play in terms of helping the end consumer make the right choices through to the actual consumer and, you know, a lot of it is about education and, you know, explaining some of the issues um, for busy people on a budget. And some of our campaigns that we've done, like Palm Oil, where we had our infamous band ad, it was, emo- you know, deliberately emotive. It was a cartoon about a little girl who was visited by an orangutan in a bedroom that had lost lost its home. And although the ad was banned, it became the most watched Christmas ad of all time. And it really helped change the public debate on palm oil before no one was talking about palm oil. After that ad, uh, Google searches of the phrase palm oil went up 10,000%. So it really helped kind of frame the discussion and make people be able to relate to it. That's extraordinary and and incredibly optimistic and, and positive when you think of that. I mean, you are known very well for leading the charge when it comes to sustainability in business. And as you say, you've written a book one man's manifesto for corporate activism, which I know will explore so much of that. But you and you, I think you sit on DEFRA's Council for Sustainable Business, don't you? Do you ever feel 
like lone wolf or that your things are falling on deaf ears or do you feel that businesses are becoming more aware of their responsibility and, and do you see sort of positive change more across the board? Yeah, I do, definitely. And I think too often with any aspect of, of public life, you know, it's too easy to polarise and make things binary. And of course, life is a lot more kind of nuanced and, and ambiguous and grey than that. And actually, the reality is a lot of business leaders in particular are very keen to try and um, make their their companies more responsible. But, you know, they 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 operate within the market, they operate, they sell their existing products. So, you know, it, they have to iterate and, and do it step by step. Um, they can't transform themselves overnight. Um, but I do think there is a, a, a huge demand by business to step up. Um, part of that is just recognising your responsibility to the planet. But actually, it's what customers expect nowadays. And there's a load of research from Edelman and uh, other, other um, agencies that show that customers, you know, they they expect they indeed demand business to step up and take action where potentially the government are falling short so i think it's good for business as well long term and whilst gen z you know those 18 year olds who are turning up uh, at our tills doing shopping and applying for jobs in our head office they might not have any money yet but they're absolutely empowered in the digital age they understand that power and they want to associate themselves with brands with a purpose you say government falling short. I mean, they obviously play a huge role in this. What role should they be playing? Would you be encouraging them to play? And do you feel that they are stepping up to the challenge? I think they are. I mean, you know, if you if you look at um, our net zero pledge 2050, we were, I think, the first developed economy to do so. And then more recently, the government's 10-point plan of exactly how they are going to do that. A detailed blueprint is, quite frankly, world leading. You know, it's it's not just a pledge now. It's got substance to it. So I think they really are pushing that agenda. And there is now quite a lot of money flowing in, in the right directions. Um, I, I think it's always easy to talk about um, why we need to change. And that debate is tired and has been had a long time ago. Even what we need to do, you know, draw down carbon, restore nature. But actually how is very hard. That requires compromise and tough choices and trade-offs. Um, but I think there is now broad agreement in government. You know, we we do urgently need to taper down the absurd amount of fossil fuel subsidies, and we need to redirect them in into jobs that ultimately um, reduce carbon and electrify everything and create jobs of the future. Are you involved? Presumably, you are from a sustainable business perspective in conversations that lead you to feel optimism about that happening and how it can happen? Yeah, I'm fueled by optimism. I think it's too easy to be overwhelmed by the daily barrage of negative environmental stories. Um, but actually, that doesn't get you anywhere. You know, it's um, just makes you feel a bit helpless, which is akin to doing nothing or not caring. So um, if you look at what's happening from a government level, China, I mean, you know, now, the biggest uh, green investor in the, in the world in terms of economy, uh, a net zero pledge of 2060 and really, you know, bold rhetoric around restoring nature, planting trees. It's all good. Uh, Biden just won the White House, which will um, unleash a wave of green investment um, opportunities, not just in the US, but around the world. So I, I do finally feel maybe spurred on by COVID that, you know, this could be our moment to um, build back better is the hackneyed phrase but actually to pause and, and start doing things differently. You've mentioned a few things already that you've done and put into place 
uh, Iceland, palm oil being one of them. What other things have you looked at changing or implementing in recent years? And perhaps you might tell us if there's anything else on the horizon at the moment. Mm. I think obviously palm oil was 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 good because it genuinely helped nudge the industry to new policies around zero deforestation i think plastics we fired the starting gun on on a, a whole wave of corporate action um when we announced that we'd become the first retailer in the world to try and eliminate completely plastic from our own label packaging by the end of 2023 and we've really led the charge on that so um we're constantly running different pilots for every 10 we run there might be nine abject failures but we are making progress and we've reduced our plastic tonnage since 2018 levels by 50 percent um so that that's been helped because the industry has now come to our way of thinking and is not just myopically focused on recyclability they're actually trying to uh, reduce the amount of plastic they produce at source in the first place, which is which is so important. And I think there's a growing awareness of a whole range of other issues. Last week, we became the first food retailer in the world to sign Cristiana Figueres's climate pledge, which is in association with Amazon, uh, which is net zero by 2040, inclusive of scope three. And we're becoming more aware of those scope three impacts and emissions. So a big issue that I'm fascinated on about the moment is soy. And soy is is uh, terrible insofar as it's causing uh, rapid deforestation in the Amazon and the Cerrado uh, below the Amazon. Um, and soy goes into animal feed for chicken and, and pigs and that sort of thing. So we're looking at how we can potentially produce um, soy-free uh, fed um, protein um, and, and whether we may be able to segregate at source soy a, a bit better. So um, there's an endless kind of inbox of uh, exciting opportunities that, that we're looking at. The other issue, of course, that's hugely important is food waste. We've spoken to a number of people on this podcast about the effect this is having on the planet. It's something that is very hard for supermarkets to react to when people perhaps aren't ready yet. I mean, you might tell me I'm wrong, but I don't think it sounds like people are generally wanting to buy things like wonky carrots and imperfect looking vegetables and fruit. A lot of process goes into making those foods, to getting those foods into the supermarket. And then, of course, a lot is thrown away. How do you overcome that? How do you think you go about tackling this massive problem of food waste? Well, I know I would say this, wouldn't I? But um buying frozen food is one of the best things you can do and we've got a lot of research now with Manchester Met University um, where we put families on all fresh diets for several weeks and then all frozen and they halved their food waste and in addition to that they also um, save 50% on their household budgets so the combined saving is enormous to both you know your wallet and the environment and I think food waste is really interesting because again the discussion is very establishment, um, but actually the real experts and, and the people with the real insights that we need to listen to are my customers, those on 25 quid a week to spend on food, because they are absolute experts in providing value for money for their families. And believe me, if you've got that little to spend on food, you are not wasting any food. Um, so the real culprits, in fact, are people like me who are cash rich and time poor. And I think a reframing of, of that debate would actually really go a long way to understanding the root cause of, of some of the issues. 
Um, but yeah, ultimately, I think it needs to be less about how we freeze leftovers and more about buying frozen food in the first place. Because you're right, food waste, if it were a country, would be the third biggest greenhouse gas emitter. And it is absolutely up there in terms of environmental ills. Do you have any further thoughts then on how we can do that very important reframing of the debate? I mean, it's at the back of my mind always when I hear the sorts of advice that, of course, most likely can't apply to much of the population who are time poor, cash poor. What are your thoughts on how we can make this relatable and applicable across society more broadly? Um, I, d- I think it's very important that, you know, we... we we try and reframe the debate and that's um has to be led i suppose at a, a political level as well and hopefully we're we're starting to um see a bit more of an understanding that you know it's it's about real people and their their kind of lived experience as opposed to um ideas from think tanks be, being down you know by the westminster bubble uh, and and therefore it is encouraging to see the leveling up agenda and um, you know, a, a, an eye to how we create green jobs in entire new industries that aren't necessarily in just in London, um, but maybe harness, you know, North Sea oil infrastructure and, and repurpose it for, for wind, etc. Um, so I, I think we just need to keep talking about this and, and pointing out the, uh, um, the you know, the where, where the debate is falling down when we see it. You've mentioned COVID a few times. How could you not? And this hackneyed phrase, build back better, which obviously is a good phrase. It's uh, just used a lot by everybody. But of course, it's a good phrase. What impact do you think COVID might have had on consumers? I always, of course, have to preface anything about positivity post-COVID with the obvious fact that it's been a tragedy. No one would have wished it on anyone or on any country. But do you think there's a sense in which food being less available, something people have had to think about differently. At the beginning, at least, it was harder to buy food and we've still not had the ability to go to the shops as much as we were able to before. And we've had to think about cooking at home, food at home, more in the kitchen. Do you think that people's minds and attitudes have changed around food security and how food gets to their plates? I think so. I hope so. I mean, I I know ours has as a family we we are meal planning a lot more and um prepping ahead um probably because we've got a bit more time to be organized about it but i think that's the case for many we've seen sales of frozen food increase 30 percent through the pandemic uh and of of course people are relearning you know how to cook and how to provision and how to plan so i i do hope that is one of the um the positives to come out of 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 this pandemic and also at a policy level we're seeing uh, previously unimaginable amounts of government spending that if we can redirect that to the right places to to create a greener future um it is absolutely an opportunity so all of these bailout packages on different industries they need to have green strings attached and i think the, the food se- sector is no different what about more generally? I mean, clearly you have a huge understanding of your customers and consumer needs and wants. We were talking earlier, I think, before we started recording about polls showing just how much climate change features in people's minds. Do, do you think that that consumers are really latching on to the importance of climate change when it comes to how food is involved in that? Food I system? think so. I mean, there's a huge amount of 
uh, awareness that's that's growing you know around everything from soil health to um the amount of carbon that our food system releases uh, and covid has taught us you know many lessons and, and when um when all the restaurants were shuttered there was an awful lot of um of food that was kind of left to rot or left in the fields because it couldn't be repurposed into um into the the retail or home system uh so i i do think it's an opportunity to, for everyone to kind of think about firstly how heavily we tread on on this planet and of course it has been a bit of a warning shot from nature but secondly um to to hopefully relook at some of some of the systems that we have and as i said before you know looking more holistically at how we can join up our food system ultimately to to make it more sustainable not just for when the next pandemic comes along which caused a demand side shock of people panic buying but also to make it more resilient against climate change on the supply side I expect lots of what we're talking about forms your book, which I haven't been able to read yet. I've just been told there's no copies. It's just PDFs, <laughs> which is coming on its way to me. So I did try and get hold of something, but uh, it's not readable yet. It's so new, so hot off the press. But could you tell us what the premise is and how it fits in, as I'm sure it does in so many ways, to what we've been talking about, what it's sort of aimed at getting people to understand? Yeah, I wanted to write it as a someone who is sort of playing the game if you like and in the trenches not not just a a commentator and just be very open and honest and transparent about all of the hard trade-offs and challenges and choices that we face every single day in terms of trying to make the business more um uh, more responsible and more sustainable and ultimately i i'm i wanted to kind of look at all of the issues that we face and and delve into how business can uh, take more positive action on uh, climate change and uh, biodiversity restoration. And I also wanted to look at what government to, can do to help facilitate that. And I suppose all of it is framed within my experience of serving 5 million people a week who uh, are struggling to make ends meet. So the whole concept of like democratizing environmentalism, which I believe is the only way we will properly scale the issue and make some genuine progress. Uh, so I, I was keen to create a bit of a manifesto if you like and distill everything all these thoughts I have and experiences not just from my own business but speaking to many others uh, and and try and put it into some sort of semblance semblance of uh, understanding um so it was uh, it was a a very very tough long process but it was utterly enjoyable um and I'm delighted especially now I finished it <laughs> Well, I'm hugely looking forward to reading it and we probably need another hour or so to talk about that. But perhaps you can tell me what we will find in there, specifically with regards to biodiversity. I mean, you mentioned it looks at what businesses can do with regards to this. And we've touched on lots of those things already. But was there anything in your research you discovered that you'd looked into and explored you'd like to share? Oh, you're challenging me now. But um, I, I, I suppose the... Uh, one of the chapters does look at COVID. I was very aware that I didn't want it to date quickly. So um, it, it's it's not really uh, too deep an account of what actually happened, but it's more about what, what that means in terms of our relationship to nature. Um, and it was interesting just looking at, you know, man's unrelenting war with nature um, from, um, uh, from many different aspects, but not least of all the agricultural system. Um, so, uh, you know, looking at what companies are doing around the world uh, to try and 
restore nature and and also nature-based targets uh, which are being imposed by the government but it, it's um yeah a uh, a really broad look basically at what people can do and just to finish then on that point about what people can do i normally ask for advice about what listeners can do as individuals in their own homes but given we have you and actually i think a lot of people who listen to this podcast do listen from a business perspective, whether they're entrepreneurs, small businesses, big businesses. And what would be from your vast expanse of experience, your main advice to them regarding what they can go away and do and think on? Yeah, it's um, it's obviously each different, each business is very different and has their own set of challenges and, um, uh, and uh, particularities. So it's very, you know, very difficult to come up with specific recommendations. But what a good sort of overarching guiding set of principles, I believe, is um, is something that a a business hero of mine came up with, a guy called Yvonne Schoonard, who's the founder of Patagonia. Mm -hmm. And he said uh, uh, there's there's three steps. The first is to understand your impact and properly look at what your environmental and social footprint is and secondly seek to uh, reduce that impact as much as possible and finally advocate share what you learn be it on podcasts or tv or through writing books so that others can um, can learn from those lessons as well and I think that's that's what we're trying to do at Ison, and that's what I think every business should do is is un- understand exactly what the consequences of their business is because the reality we talk about sustainable business, but there is no such thing as a sustainable business. There's no, there's no business that puts more back into nature than it takes away from it. And um, we need to recognise that reality uh, because once you recognise it, you you can seek to minimise and do something about it, and hopefully use business as a platform. You know, to be a corporate activist as we've tried to do with palm oil and plastics and everything else, and and drive awareness and change. Richard, I feel like I don't want to ask another question because I don't think it's a better place to end off and it's perfectly timed. So thank you so much indeed for for joining us. These are meant to be bite-sized podcasts, but as we've got more excited about them, they've gone on a little bit longer (laughs) to to extend to half an hour, but certainly spend another half an hour talking about various other bits that we can read in the book when it's out. But I think it's been a month till publication. That's right, beginning of April, the Green Garosa. So... um... Yeah, I'd absolutely delighted. We'll encourage everyone who listens to make sure they pre-order it. When the copies are actually physical things, then I'm sure they'll be winding their way to everybody um, in a sustainable way. Thank you very, very much indeed. Thanks, Richard.